Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. So, continuing last week's collaboration with Wines of Germany, this week on By the Glass, I'm digging into the topic of minimal intervention grape growing and winemaking. In the first half of this two-part focus, I talked to Jochen Bührer about the Trollinger, Lemberger, and Riesling he's making in Württemberg by maintaining biodiversity in the vineyard. Definitely check out that conversation if you want to hear from one of the most badass and thoughtful natural winemakers in Germany right now. And now that we've heard on a producer level about low intervention, we'll zoom out a little bit and discuss this paradigm shift on a bigger scale with an importer. In this case, we'll be chatting with Jenna Fields, the founder of the German Wine Collection. Her portfolio includes venerable producers like J.J. Prume as well as relative upstarts like Okonomirat Rebholtz. I wanted to hear from Jenna about how she balances traditionalism with this new generation of wine consumers. So I reached out to Jenna and we caught up to hear about what it's like to start an import company in the midst of a pandemic and a trade war. It is a wild time to be jumping into the mix. And I wanted to hear from Jenna all about it. Here she is. Hey, how are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing well, you know, just trying to stay cool in this Houston humidity. I don't know. How's everything with GWC? I mean, the last time we spoke, I think over the phone the wine was on the water and you were in the process of bringing it over. Yes. So it landed and everything? Yes. Um, not without, you know, hiccups and hurdles, as you could imagine. Um, oh, man. Getting the wine on the water um, during the pandemic was one thing. Um, and then getting mm-hmm. it through the ports and customs mm-hmm. with, you know, both having half staff and um, three of our containers hit the day of massive protests. Um, oh really yes yes and then getting everything um into the warehouse also Mm -hmm. only being able to have half their workers at a time um was was quite a process um and so the wine is here uh everything is is moving forward um and i i just keep telling myself that like everything will be easier after this (laughs) if this is the environment we launch in was the timeline always to get the wines out in front of people by end of summer was that kind of the time frame or was that a moving target over the past you know eight to eight to twelve months yes it was um it was a it was a moving target and (laughs) and for different reasons it started to be a moving target Mm -hmm. because of tariffs and yeah. why would put wine, we can't put wine on the water in January if it's going to hit in February and these tariffs are increased. Um, and so the, the goal originally was to have wine here end of January, kind of doing a beginning of 2020 launch. Um, and that, that just wasn't possible. Um, I think I may have had unrealistic expectations as far as um, uh, getting label approvals for all the, all the wines all need label approvals. Every single state needs its own license. Every single state has its own rules as far as registering each label and each brand and, and brand assignments to distributors and having all those individualized conversations with all 48 distributors and um, or making changes within the distribution network, which we've also done. Um, and then making sure, so to make sure we have a distribution network for these wines when they arrive. Then the tariff conversation got really hot. And yeah. so then it was on hold due to tariffs. Mm-hmm. Well, then 
it was an interesting, it was a very interesting time because um, when the 100% tariffs didn't go through, it, I got all these congratulation texts and let's celebrate. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, there's a 25% tariff, which is gutting everyone's business for absolutely no reason, which is still there today. And I think a lot of people, there's a misconception about that where, yeah, the 100% that would have put everybody out of business overnight didn't go through. But the 25%, which is just slowly gutting everybody is still a, a huge threat. Um, but then since they, um, you know, for the foreseeable future, the 25% were here to stay, uh, we put wine on the water as we're getting our containers ready and, and preparing our orders at the wineries, um, the pandemic hits. So, um, it's, it's weird. I've never really kind of told the story like that. It's, it's crazy that, that we're here going through all of this, but every business has been affected by this, the tariffs. You know, the the closing down of a company with tariffs, with a pandemic is a unique mix. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the pandemic issue affects affects everybody and, and some much more harshly than us. Um, you know, so so no complaints there. Um, we still have the opportunity to move forward and are doing so. And I, I couldn't be more grateful and, and thrilled for the opportunity. Well, I'm super stoked to get these wines back into the market, you know, and for you eventually to come back yes. to Houston at, at some point in time. When traveling is a thing again. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the last time you were here, would it have been like... Gosh, was it even maybe early September? Um, but I remember when I met you, you just gotten back from your trip and yeah. where you were running a marathon and doing all the winery visits. Didn't you do the winery visits before the marathon, which is even crazier? Well, honestly, like people <laughs> always ask that because I've done that a couple of times for different marathons. Okay. It makes more sense to do it that way because, you know, you're you're getting a chance to kind of like gradually ease yourself in, you know, most of your winery visits are in like the morning or early afternoon. So you're able to go to bed at an earlier hour. Yeah. If I had spent like the first couple of days in Berlin or in Frankfurt, you know, if I'd been like out at restaurants or if I were in Berlin at one of the clubs, you know, if I'm at <laughs> Berlin, then I'm out until like fucking three or four in the morning. Sure. So it was honestly like better for me, like, yeah, just have like a little bit of low alcohol wine up until about five in the afternoon, then maybe have an early dinner, go to bed, start the day over. So it was honestly so great. It gave me a week to kind of like set myself up for success before running the race. Yeah. And a chance to see some amazing producers. So it was cool to see for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you've had a completely different experience and insight at the wineries than I have because I've only been on um, a lot of people have called them Rudy's death marches, which are which are so <laughs> informative and educational and really the only way to see, yeah. you know, 26 producers in a very short amount of time. But that's the number one thing I want to do once, you know, I feel like I'm going to keep saying it, once traveling is a thing again, is to go at my own pace. So many times we're in the tasting room just asking about grams of acidity and RS, and we don't get to go to the vineyard because we have to get to our next appointment. And it's like, we just missed everything about that appointment. And so very excited to go and take my time and do a trip kind of like what you got to do, where just, you know, a couple of And you're going to run a marathon at the end of it too, right? Uh, so sure about that one but uh <laughs> we'll we'll see we'll see maybe 
<laughs> okay. Well, I'm stoked to have you here. Um, Jenna, you are the founder of GWC, mm-hmm. the German wine collection, uh, which is a very new company, right? Like yes. <laughs> fresh uh, as of 2019, 2020. 2020. I don't know what you consider the birth year. Is it 2020? I would say twenty end of 2019 was kind of the conceptual time of the company and 2020 was the birth year, which is... You have like a full birth chart for it, right? <laughs> like. Yeah, yeah, quite quite a birth chart, especially with uh, 2020. That will always be <laughs> the the craziest year we could have chosen in history to launch. So um, cool. Yeah. Well, maybe we can give listeners a quick kind of like uh, synopsis or timeline for for the company and kind of uh, what you've created with GWC. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so GWC was was born out of um, the 40 years of blood, sweat, and tears of Rudy Weiss. It was really his passion, along with um, a few others in this industry, that really brought German wines into the United States um, in the early 80s. And so it was his uh, 40 years of of hard work um, that really inspired uh, the new company. And um, so the new company is comprised of his former employees, including myself, um, I had a fluke meeting with Rudy at the end of college <laughs> and uh, really? yeah, yeah. And, uh, two weeks after college graduation, I was on a flight to Germany and just never looked back. When I, when I graduated and went to Germany, I went with Rudy actually on, um, a customer trip. And so that, that was kind of my first experience and kind of more as almost at that point as a consumer, not knowing anything about German wine with these fresh eyes. And so it's always fun to go back to that 22 year old in Germany (laughs) um, that that didn't know anything about German wine and just knowing that that's, you know, for the most part, the, you know, general consumer in the U S and remembering just, you know, having my eyes open to what's really going on in Germany and always keeping that, you know, initial perspective in mind, you know, when representing these wines. When you look back on that trip, was there a specific winery that like totally stood out to you or a light bulb just went on in your head? Oh, there were so many. I mean, I could probably pick out one each day, but I think the big light bulb of like, this is going to be my life passion and why don't people know about this was at Rebholt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, before that trip, I didn't even have an understanding that there was dry wine in Germany and that was just, that's the message that we have of German wine in, in the United States. And yes, I taste, tasted absolutely spectacular sweeter Rieslings in Germany, of course. But there was this whole other category of wine I had no idea about that the Germans do so well. And I just remember the entire time, probably multiple times a day saying, why don't, why don't people know about this? Why is this a secret? Um, and figuring mm-hmm. out how we make it so that's not the case. So we were talking before this about the unique challenges related to starting an import company in the midst of both a coronavirus pandemic and a tariff kind of like fucking shit show. Um, But what are some of the unique challenges related to importing German wine beyond the tariffs, beyond the pandemic, just kind of speaking generally, what are some of the challenges you see and unique opportunities that you see as an importer specifically of German wine? Yeah. Well, I think with what you just said, it's like the, the challenge presents the opportunity. 
Um, the challenge is the masses still don't know about these wines, but that's what makes it so exciting. That's why the GWC was born is because the, the work is going to take another generation or two. I mean, we'll do everything we can in this generation. Um, but yeah. so I would say the unique challenge of German wine is that people still don't know about it. They still, it's, it's still such a niche category and, mm -hmm. but that's what makes it exciting. There's, you know, if, the people that know just a little bit about German wine know about the fantastic sweet Rieslings of Germany, but they'll automatically go to sweet wine in their head when they hear German wine. And, you know, people don't know about all these other varietals that make up such a large percentage of the wines in Germany. I mean, we look just even to such a common varietal, a common, commonly consumed varietal in the U.S. like Pinot Noir. And Germany is the third largest producer of it. And nobody knows about it yet. That's exciting. That's an opportunity mm -hmm. for us and the other German importers. I mean, same with, they're the second largest producer of Pinot Gris behind Italy, the second largest producer of Pinot Blanc um, behind France. And, and these are all things that are yet to be discovered. I mean, there's spectacular varietals, like a big passion of mine is Sylvaner. No one knows what Sylvaner is. <laughs> That's exciting. If everybody already yeah. knew about it, there'd be no purpose for the GWC to even start or any of my, you know, our fellow importers. There's just so much opportunity and excitement and education. And um, yeah, I mean, there's so much ahead of us that's still yet to be done in the United States. I'd say for Germany, there's more growth potential than, than anywhere else because it's still so unknown. And I think that's, that speaks so much to like what you excel at is educating, you know, whether it's people in the trade or educating end consumers, right? Like mm -hmm. that's so much of what we have to do with German wine. It's not like dialing down little tiny minuscule details and differences. Right. It's really about like these broad introductions um, and making it as approachable as possible for everyone. Right. So something that I really wanted to talk about specifically with you is kind of this idea of minimal intervention mm -hmm. or lo-fi winemaking within the context of Germany. You know, Germans... Um, when it comes to winemaking, certainly place a value on like hand harvesting. There's a lot of debate out about whether to ferment spontaneously or inoculate. Mm -hmm. But maybe we can start by just kind of defining the lay of the land a little bit in terms of the history of organic farming or biodynamic uh, viticulture in Germany. Right, right. I mean, I think so there's a, a broad spectrum of philosophies and beliefs as there is anywhere else in the world. But I think... <laughs> Kind yeah. of the um, general um, rule and understanding, especially amongst the growers that I'm most familiar with, is as little as possible, as much as necessary, seems to be a thing that you hear quite a bit. And then also maintaining nature and maintaining the vineyard differences. And I mean, I think their low intervention in that respect is no different than anywhere else. But I think in Germany, they've had their unique challenges as far as mass production. I mean, up until, I mean, before the early 80s, maybe 70s, there really wasn't much to intervene with. It was this idea of mass production and that made these top mm -hmm. growers say, well, how do we separate ourselves from that even further? Even growers mm -hmm. that have been around since, you know, the 1300s were like, well, now we're being compared to this mass production. People are asking, say, in Peaceport, how can I get a, a cabinet for $5 and yours is... 30. Well, yeah. how do we differentiate between that? And I think it was, you know, winemakers all falling under, falling under this category of minimal interventionalists 
is because they had to really steer away from this mass production uh, that was happening, you know, kind of in the early 80s is when that big trend started. Yeah, so it's kind of a reaction to mass production, this desire to make a, you know, better product through more attention to detail, both in the vineyard and in the cellar. Absolutely. And, you know, something that I think we struggle with sometimes when interpreting German wine, there is that long sense of tradition. I mean, you were talking about producers that have been around for centuries. And within your portfolio, GWC represents what I think are some of the most historic producers. Like when I think of like the OGs, the goats (laughs) of Germany, right? Like producers that immediately jump to my mind are like JJ Prume, right? Mm -hmm. You've got producers that have been doing this you know, the same way for so long where they, they've been doing it so traditionally that now it's almost seen as like a modern tech. The emphasis on purity of fruit, you know, you, I think you referenced it earlier. It's this idea of like not straying too far. There's not a lot of work done to make that wine taste different than what you're getting in the vineyard, that what you're getting from those vines, the goal is to fuck it up the least from point A to point B, from turning it from grape into juice. And that idea of purity of fruit, um, how do you do that um, while still having some level of like spontaneity? I mean, it's that that balancing act between precision and spontaneity in terms of the flavor of the wine, the ethos of the wine or the winery. I mean, how do you see those? Well, they're German, so their spontaneity is very precise. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes. So the the way that the way that I see it with a, with a lot of these producers is this is how it's been done forever. This is mm-hmm. so so they may be honing it honing that in and the and the next generation is okay. Well, we have these vineyard differences. How do we make these wines more precise? How do we um, like you said, fuck it up the least is is perfect. <laughs> it's the second that those grapes are harvested, they're losing a sense of character. So how do we how do we maintain that? How do we not take away from these grapes? How do we make sure that all that work and these, I mean, these growers are so meticulous. They're complete freaks of the vineyard. 95% of these wines are made in the vineyard. They'll all tell you that. How do we Mm -hmm. maintain that and do as little as possible so that everything that we're doing transfers into the bottle? And for a lot, and for a lot of these growers, the answer is very simple, that this is, this is what they've always done. This is what has been taught. This is, they've always been trying to give the wines as much of a sense of, of place as possible. A lot of, um, or these growers didn't go with, I mean, when cultured yeast was introduced in the fifties, they, they stayed with indigenous yeast. They never changed their trend. And so I think, um, what makes it so important is to not sway with the trends and to stay true to what makes these wineries unique, what makes each vineyard unique. And, and staying true to that. And I think, you know, right now, uh, you know, the, the whole topic of minimal intervention is so popular. And I, I think it's not a trend that's going to go away. This is something that people have been doing for generations. And now it's being brought to light with, well, why are these producers so good? Why are they so highly regarded? Why are they so consistent vintage after vintage um, in being successful? Um, and I think that's, that's what we're looking at is, is staying true to tradition and having it finally recognized. And I think part of the challenge, right, is when we define, you know, natural wine, right, we're, we're not just defining 
the way in which that wine is made or the way in which those grapes are grown, it's in, it's very challenging to uncouple the aesthetic of natural wine from the techniques or the methodology of natural wine, if that makes sense, right? I think that, you know, we're talking about producers that are very traditional, you know, that have been making wine the same way for a very long time. How, how do you see producers in Germany, at least the producers within your portfolio, kind of reconciling that like aestheticism of natural wine, where there is this goal of like an uninhibitedness, you know, to the wine where, you know, whatever it may be in terms of fermentation or filtration or the way in which you're farming or sulfur regimens, um, even to something as superficial as a label design, right? Okay. To what some of these traditional producers are doing. Um, again, I don't think that there's really something necessarily different that they're doing. Um, I think it's really, you know, goes back to the work in the vineyard and making sure that that, that stays true all the way through into the bottle. Um, you know, but but it depends. I mean, you you have this mix of some wineries where they are changing things. I mean, a, a major one would be Schaefer Froelich. I mean, he took over in the '90s and completely um, revamped the entire winery to um, single vineyard production. But for the most part, I think a lot of it is figuring out how to, in some cases, modernizing labels so that they are more approachable. In some places, it's holding on to tradition. I'd say um, something recently that, that we've done as far as holding on to tr tradition would say um, in Franconia with bringing back the box boidles. It's like, well, wait, why did we do away with those? That's such a big, an important part of their tradition where back in the 1600s, it was decided this was the bottle shape. And in the 1700s, only top quality wines would go into this bottle and that's upheld today. That's part of their history. And I know we kind of steered away from that because, oh, the bottle shape is difficult to, to store, but it's- Do you want to kind of like explain to listeners yes. what that bottle I shape know. looks like, what it was based <laughs> on? Because it's if you don't know, it's yes. pretty crazy. Yes, yes. So um, to explain that bottle shape, um, it was literally designed off the shape of goat scrotum. Like that that's what it is. But, what they, but the reason that they designed it to be that shape um, there's a lot of different philosophies when you talk to different growers in Franconia, which is so interesting. Um, the main one, Andrea Versching will tell you um, that back in, in the time of the monks, they had their little side satchels on their belts uh, for their pocketbooks and for their Bibles. Mm -hmm. And so the box boidle is this squatty round flat bottle, um, which I love because it also fits in a purse. But back with the monks, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, yeah, it's, it's very easy to carry around. But back with the monks, they could put it in their little side satchel where their pocketbooks or where their Bibles were going to be, and they could carry around wine on their belts. Um, another theory that a lot of people talk about is that we always talk about the, the steep sites in the Mosul, but we don't so much talk about steep sites in Franconia, and there's very steep vineyards there. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of people um, will say that that bottle shape was designed because it's flat so that the bottle doesn't roll down the vineyard. And I think that's a little more of a story. Go. So I think the practical one would be with the monks, but there's, there's, you know, just like any old stories yeah. from hundreds of years ago, um, there's many variations. I like the idea that like, you don't need a fanny pack. You just need to have like this little satchel. Yeah. You know, you got your wine there. You're ready to go. You got your Bible. You got your wine. Yeah. You, you got everything you need. Totally. Old school fanny packs. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah. So I think taking little nuances like that, that really have history with meaning and history with purpose that really set these wines apart and, and kind of give you that backstory as to why is this wine here? Why is this wine brought over? Um, you know, there's a lot of effort that goes into importing wine mm -hmm. in, into the United States. Why? And so anything that can set these wines apart and make them special, I think with certain historic estates is important. But then also <laughs> on the other side of things, we're also looking at not what sets them apart necessarily, but what can make them approachable to the general consumers as well. I'd say the box boidel is an exception because it's it's an absolute conversation piece that brings the conversation to G German wines. Um, you know, when when you walk out on a restaurant floor with that bottle, um, but then also doing I always call it the sneak attack with uh, varietals that every restaurant will carry, um, like the Pinot Trio, and having the one Pinot by the glass be from Germany. Well, that's interesting. German Pinot Noir. What the heck is that? And mm -hmm. um, so I think it's this mix of tradition and history and how can we modernize it to make it make it a conversation today that is interesting and that will take hold um, with consumers. And for you specifically in that role as an importer, you know, a, a producer can directly impact that, right? Like they can decide you know, I'm going to forego this part of my tradition for the sake of modernization. You know, yeah. you were talking about, you know, Schaefer Froelich, the changes that went on yes. there. What is your role within that as the importer in terms of relaying the message from maybe consumers to producers or from producers to consumers? Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I feel like at, you know, especially on the conversation of, uh, of minimal intervention, it's really my my job to take these stories and to take what's being done in Germany and present the message to the United States. Um, it, mm -hmm. It's not my role whatsoever to be changing that conversation and changing what they're doing. It's more of, of promoting it. Of course, we give feedback. I'd say a, a prime example of this would be um, with, without getting too technical, that you know a dry Riesling, say, can have up to nine grams of sugar. And we've had a few producers that are proud of their dry Riesling with, you know, eight and a half grams of sugar. And we explain <laughs> in the United States, if we're going to try to promote, um, you know, this idea of dry Riesling, which I really feel is the future in the growth of, of Riesling in the United States. If there is any perceived sweetness on the palate whatsoever, we are shooting ourselves in the foot. And so for the U.S. market, yes, in Germany, people could say dry, but they really want some sweetness. But in the U.S. market, if we're going to put dry on the label it needs to be bone dry. It needs to have absolutely no perceived sweetness on the palate. And it needs to have, I usually say less than three grams um, hmm. to really work in the US market and have the, the message that we're trying to portray for the group as a whole. Um, you know, if, if we have a dry Riesling that is perceived sweet at all, then that hurts our the overall message, I'd say would be would be one example of that. But then also seeing what's needed in the market and kind of seeking out fun projects in Germany so that we're not changing, you know, what any of these growers are doing, but seeking out projects that are different um, that only add to the breadth of the portfolio and the potential of opportunity. Um, I'd say one of those newer projects would be uh, Fritz Muller and the Rheinhessen with uh, Pearl Vine or Semi-Sparklings. 
um, which is Germany's answer to Prosecco, which we've never had before. That's a fun, it has a, a cool striped bubble, modern label. Um, that's, that's really fun. That's something completely different apart from these historical producers, which just bring the conversation of German wine um, more to the forefront and give it, you know, a wider reach. So I think, I think the answer there is, is not changing anything, um, but relaying the message and maybe diversifying the portfolio for um, needs that we see in the market. Totally. You talked about how the job of the importer is to create kind of, there, there's a curation element to it, yep. right? And creating a diverse book that, that has, you know, elements of traditionalism as well as elements of modernism. And I think that what's so great about the book that you've created is GWC has, you know, producers like Fritz Müller and you have traditional producers on the other end of the spectrum yeah. as well. But for you, when it came to creating this, because it's still very much in its infancy, where do you see kind of the book progressing from here? Yeah, well, it, yeah, it's very much in its, its infancy. It's it's interesting to think about when we talk about Rudy had 40 years with it and and carrying on that work. There's a huge responsibility, which is a light way to, to put it. I don't really have words for it, to be honest. Um, so it's really preserving that. And no matter how you look at it, like this, this is his legacy um, through the eyes of the next generation. And it's the next generation part is, is how it will, it will transform. And I think at the core of it, it's always going to be these traditional top producers um, but what's interesting is how it transforms within that because we're at, at a generational shift with so many of these traditional producers. Um, and so maintaining the element of tradition within the wineries that we have and kind of watching it transform. I mean, we've never had these conversations of really of minimal intervention, even though that's what they've always done. We've never had um, the conversation of organ organic grape growing. This was never even discussed when we were over in, in Germany. And now it's such a topic in the forefront um, that's really being brought to light by this generation and by the, the next generation of growers over there. Um, so, so it's really interesting. But with that being said, as far as um, you know, opportunities for, for future growth, I think only time will tell. Um, and just having open eyes and ears when we're over in Germany and, and seeing and seeing what's happening over there. I think what's so important for German wine in the United States is bringing over a proper representation of what's going on in Germany to give that life in the United States. Um, because I think there's been a disconnect. I mean, you have to start somewhere. I mean, it's taken 40 years to, to build what's here today. But now to skew that into a proper representation of what you see on, you know, restaurant menus over in Germany and, and, and having a better um, mix of what's happening there and what we're bringing here. So since you have spent more time in Germany than, you know, me or probably many of our listeners, like what have been some of your biggest takeaways from previous visits where you've been or from conversations with, you know, younger winemakers? What are the biggest kind of like discrepancies you see between what's going on there versus what's going on here? Yeah. Well, with German wine, one of the th the conversations I've had with the, the, the up and coming generation over there 
is how German wine has remained such a niche in the United States and how we change that. And something that I've, I've always noticed that that's always, I don't want to say bothered me because you have to start somewhere and it's so important and to get German wine to, you know, start at the top is phenomenal, but it's Mm -hmm. really been this white tablecloth category um, for so long. And um, which, which were, you know, very fortunate to say that German wine is, is mostly found in, in Michelin star restaurants and um, you know, in, in higher end restaurants with Psalms on the floor that understand these wines. But when you're in Germany, what you really see, of course, cause it's their, their local home region, you know, are all of these, you know, fun um, wine bars, casual cafes, um, you know, where you just have, you can get a glass of Riesling Cabbie by the, you know, by the glass. And um, that element of that culture over there where it's just so carefree and, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can just go to a street market and, and order these wines. And yes, of course, because you're in their, their home country. Yeah. But if we can, but if we can take away um, kind of this niche culture of German wines to only be high end. I think that's a big starting point of, of where we have our work cut out for us. And even just looking at where, where do we like to dine? Where do we like to hang out? And is there a representation of German wine in that establishment? And I think current day, oftentimes the answer is going to be no, more often than not. And so I think that's where you see over there and what you want to bring over here is just having, um, you know, more of a casual atmosphere where German wine doesn't need to be intimidating. It can just be um, easily consumed by the glass. So, you know, something that I think gives you a really unique position to answer this is you currently run the import company, but previously you were in a sales position. So you were the one going to all the accounts, checking places out, you know, I don't know how large your region was when you were working in sales, um, but I imagine it covered a lot of states, a lot of cities, right? Yeah. Was there a market that you think was really killing it in terms of like that representation that you'd love to see? Yeah. I, well, I would say, um, more than anywhere else in the country, New York's always been, you know, kind of on the, always New York. always New York. It is. The bell of the ball. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, but you do see it, you know, in New York mm-hmm. where, um, people are willing to kind of go out of their comfort zones. And I think that that's consumer driven and it's also a very international city. And so, um, you know, to take that model and put it in other places, it's, it's going to, you know, that's going to take some time and it's going to take some, some work and some, some focus on those markets. But I think it's important. And, and that's just not specific to Germany. I think that's uh, consumers being adventurous in wine in general. You know, you were referencing earlier different certifications, um, kind of the role of farming and your producers, you know, have a mix of different certifications. Some yeah. don't have any like certification itself. They're like, Hey, we do these things. We don't need to pay someone to say that we do it. Right. And then you have others that are very much championing, you know, fair and green or whatever other practices. Right. What's kind of your take on all of that? Um, I think there's less resistance now. I'd say 10 years ago when we were over there, when we, when organic certification really started to be something we'd be asked about by distributors and customers, they would kind of look at us and, 
just, well, this is how we've done it for generations. You know, we've, we've never used any of these things and we've always made our wines as, you know, close to nature as possible. And now because everyone else in the world, I mean, mass production in Germany included, um, you know, has messed everything up. We are asked to go pay and get a certification to show this is what we do, which we've done for generations, which doesn't make any sense. So I'd say 10 years ago, there was a lot of resistance to it. Um, since then, I'd say since even the last five years, we're seeing more and more people getting the certification, seeing that this is not a trend that's going to go away. This actually is required to sell to certain customers. We, we do need to actually show these are our practices. Um, mm -hmm. I think the one you had mentioned it, um, the one that is most important to the growers at the moment is fair and green um, because that's about sustainability for the future. Um, and sustainability practices, you know, for the winery as a whole, um, which in turn, you know, does make you um, have to have organic organic farming and does, um, you know, make sure that your wines are as natural as possible. And so I think and it's a guideline where um, I believe with with fair and green, once you to enter in, you have to have 30% of the standards and then make a 30% increase each year so you could work mm. towards sustainability instead of all or nothing, um, which I think is attractive to a lot of the growers um, in order to, because a lot of times a change can be intimidating or, you know, going by their certain standards may be slightly different than what they've been, they've been doing. Um, but as far as certificates in general, um, you know, if, if a winery is opposed to going through the certification, that's not going to deter us away from, from representation whatsoever. At the end of the day, it's, it's what's on, it's what's on a piece of paper. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I support the growers that have gone through it, but I don't think it's the end all be all. Um, I think the need for having a certificate is a fad. I don't think wanting um, you know, sustainability and organic grown grapes and nat wines as natural as possible. That's not a fad. That's not going away. But the idea mm -hmm. of that will become so commonplace 10 years from now. I don't think we're going to be so concerned with certifications. Totally. And something that I always love chatting with importers about is importers are able to kind of see the bigger picture. You know, you ask a particular grower, about something and they can answer it in relation to maybe their own region and maybe not even within their own region, but maybe within their village. Yeah. But most, most producers don't chat with a winemaker, you know, hundreds of miles away from them. In your experience, do you see any like major kind of changes when you deal with producers in one region versus another, your book is really well represented where you have people as far south as, you know, mm -hmm. Württemberg and producers as far north as are, you know, yeah. um, can you talk about some of those regional differences when it comes to farming? Um, when it comes to farming, I would say the biggest topic that is actually, um, universal, but has such a different take based on the regions would be the global warming conversation has been, has been a big one. Um, and kind of the regional differences and even producer by producer within those regions of um, how they're kind of anticipating um, the ever going changes with, with global warming 
in where they're focusing their varietals per region and actually going back to traditional varietals and seeing that those may be the ones that you know, will uphold the changing conditions and the climate, which has been very interesting in, in seeing kind of these traditional varietals per region and how they stay true to form, even with this global warming, I'd say there's there's so many examples of it. But one would be, say, in Franconia with Sylvaner, which is such a traditional varietal. They have 350 years of history with that varietal. Um, you know, and Franconia obviously is going to be warmer than, say, high, um, you know, when you go further north to the Mosul. And so with the varietal with Sylvaner, it has a thicker skin grape. It's not as impacted by the sun. It's we're not so concerned like with Riesling of maintaining acidity. The naturally the leaves are maintaining water. And so, you know, where you go with a varietal they've traditionally grown, say Muller Turgau, that that varietal is going to dry out in heat. And so we're going back to focusing on Sylvaner and eventually a lot of these Franconian states will be Sylvaner, Pinot, and even Chardonnay has is, is been part of the conversation. And then going when you go further north, the conversation is, well, now we don't have to talk about ripening our grapes and how we mm-hmm. you know, have um, all our vineyards at the angle to the in relation to the river to achieve ripeness. Ripeness isn't an issue anymore. Overripeness mm-hmm. isn't, isn't necessarily, they're not worried about overripening. They're changing their practices. Um, but it's, it's very, in, that, I would say that, conversation regionally has been the most interesting mm-hmm. um, for me. And also seeing, um, you know, even with, with Rebholtz, what they're doing in, in preparation and adjusting to the current situation of global warming, where, you know, in this is very specific, but say with the I'm Sonnenschein vineyard, where they're planting Pinot Blanc. Well, Pinot Blanc, again, it's a varietal that you're not worried about maintaining as much acidity. And then they are focused with uh, Riesling in the Castanian bush, where there's protection, where they're able to maintain the coolness that comes in through the nights. And they're able to maintain the water in that vineyard better for Riesling, where we need to maintain the acidity. Yeah. So these are just, and these are conversations that I'd say two years, even two years ago, we didn't have. Yeah. It's very interesting. You know, another thing we were talking earlier about certifications, Mm -hmm. there's kind of this dichotomy within uh, German wine, which is like producers that are part of the VDP and producers that aren't part of the VDP, right? right? Mm -hmm. And you represent a fair number of producers that are members and several producers that aren't. Does that present any difference in how you show those wines in the market or how you talk about that difference? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the VDP was created 100 years ago um, to uphold certain quality levels. I mean, there was a lot, um, the, the German wine law at the time was very broad. And so to maintain a certain level of quality, the VDP was created, and that's still its role today. Does that mean that only the only quality wine in Germany, you know, has an eagle on the capsule with a VDP label on it? Absolutely not. But it is a signifier of quality that where you are upheld to, you know, lower yields and no deacidification and no, I mean, there, so you do know that these wines, um, do signify quality. Um, so when you do see that, that is, I think to, you know, buyers and consumers alike, that is a way to know that these are wines that are upheld to a different standard than, you know, some of the others. However, does that mean that only quality wine out of Germany has to have the VDP capsule on it? No, 
Um, I, I would, but I would say that that was 20 years ago, that that was the really the only, you know, classifier for quality wine when you were in the US, you were looking for um, the VDP capsule. But I, I do not think that that's the case anymore. And I think that um, but it, but it is a help, a nice guide, I'd say for consumers mm-hmm. at a retail shelf and you're trying to decide between this or that, and there isn't anybody to help you and explain any, any differences. If you do see that, that VDP capsule, then you're going to know that it's, you know, definitely upheld to certain standards. Anything else you want to let listeners know about, uh, the wines that you represent, any producers you want to shout out or regions that they should keep their eye on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's like picking between children. Um, we are <laughs> yeah. fortunate enough to represent 20, 20 producers. Um, but I, but I think the biggest thing to consumers is to not be scared of, of what you don't know and to try something different. I think as human beings, we're so comfortable being comfortable. Um, <laughs> and, and that, that we don't want to look like we don't know something or that we don't know how to pronounce something or that we don't, just, I, I think just always having a curiosity for wine, because it, it doesn't matter if you are having your first glass of wine, or, you know, you're, you're certified all the all the way up in the ranks of Vina Sommelier. It's, it's always a learning experience for for everybody, there's always something new. And I think, um, I think it's so important um, for this next generation to experiment around with with things they may not be familiar with. And that's where we're going to see a lot of growth with these German wines, which are fantastic qualities, um, great values, because a lot of these aren't known names that, you know, can just um, get these high price tags for who they are. It's really your, your, it's a lot of value for the money um, when you drink wine from Germany. Um, I also think that, you know, this next generation of um, all these wineries coming up, I think we're going to see more and more of these wines in the United States. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of it has to do with the support that we're getting in the market that we've never had. Um, these guys are very eager to come over to the United States. Um, I mean, when I think of, you know, the next generation that's up and coming that we're going to see more of, I think of, uh, Fritz Becker at Friedrich Becker in the Faults. I, and, and his Pinot varietals um, that we're going to see more and more of in the market. I think of Hans and Valentin Rebholz, um, that are maintaining tradition of three generations of, they're three generations of natural wine producers um, and really started the movement of biodynamics over in Europe and um, to see what they're going to continue with it and also um, put, I like to say, put their spin on it. Um, and then we have, I mean, Tim Furlick, you look at Johannes Hart, the 22nd generation at, at Reinhold Hart. Yeah, I know. I, I, I was the, um, you know, blonde young American that asked him, well, what if you just didn't want to work at the family winery? And he looked at me like I was absolutely crazy and just never thought of it. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think there's, there's a lot of excitement um, around German wine. And that excitement comes from a lot of still unknowns, still having German wine be <laughs> niche in the US. And I know a lot of people tell me that it's always going to be funny. niche, this will always be a niche category. And I refuse, I refuse to believe that I wouldn't be doing this if that's what I thought. I, I think, um, yes, German wine had its had its um, had its glory days 
in the early 2000s, but it's not over. It's just changing. And I think it's just going to be diversified and we're going to see um, more quality, more varietals um, and, and more of these wines in the U.S. So it's, it's an exciting time. Um, and I, I encourage people to, to seek these out and ask people, you know, um, ask retailers, ask restaurants, um, you know, what they have from Germany. And also I demand everybody go support your local retailers and your restaurants um, <laughs> as much as you possibly can. In this, It's time. a very important PSA. Yes, that's my PSA. Very important. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Drink more German wine and support your retailers. Yes. Local retailers, local restaurants, uh, the big, the big, uh, um, grocery stores do not need your support right now. <laughs> eat, hmm. eat, um, as, and support as many restaurants as you can. Absolutely. So what was the last bottle of uh, German wine that you drank? Oh, it was actually, um, last night it was, um, the village Epoch for Sylvaner from, uh, Andrea Vershing. There we go. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yes. <laughs> Very fun. Well, thank you so much for your time. Very much appreciate it. Jenna, do you want to shout out uh, where people can find you on social media, Instagram, yes. the website for GWC, yes. all that good stuff? Absolutely. So our website is the uh, thegwc.com. Our Instagram is the German Wine Collection. Same with our Facebook. Um, and then you can also find me on Instagram, um, Jenna M. Fields. There we go. I love it. Cool. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you for the appreciate opportunity. It. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that is our conversation about minimal intervention in Germany. I want to thank Wines of Germany for giving me the opportunity to collaborate with them on this educational project. We've got more Wines of Germany by the Glass collabs on the way. So make sure to subscribe to By the Glass wherever you stream audio content so you never miss an episode. You can follow By the Glass on Instagram at By the Glass Podcast, and you can follow Wines of Germany at German Wine USA. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you with another episode of By the Glass.